Welcome to On The Rise, a podcast about female college tennis players on the way up. On The Rise serves compelling stories and unique voices in women's college tennis. This is your host, Perry Shinen. In this episode of On The Rise, I will be speaking with University of Washington alum Monique Matheson, who played in the top spot for the Huskies while earning her degree in political science and government. Now, Monique is the Chief Human Resources Officer for Nike. She has been with the swoosh for nearly 25 years and is in her fifth year leading HR. We recorded this episode at the Nike World Headquarters in Beaverton, Oregon. I'm joined today by Monique Matheson from Nike. Just what an incredible career you've had, you know, as a player, but also now on the other end of it. So I want to start back with your tennis playing days. When did you start playing? I started playing when I was probably 11, started playing tournaments when I was 12. My family, we weren't really into tennis, but my mom started playing and I just became obsessed with it, like right off the bat. Just couldn't get enough of it. When was the moment that you wanted to play professionally and take your career to that next level? When I was playing the UW, a friend said she was going to play in Europe for the summer. I thought that sounded interesting. And now when I think about it, there was no internet. So we were calling, we were mailing in entry forms for these tournaments in Europe. And we did not know where we were going to stay. We found places as we went. We drove. I drove a stick shift all through Europe the summer that we played those tournaments. I mean, when you're planning it and you're doing it, you don't hardly think about it. It's only when it's finished and you look back sometimes, it's like, wow, if I had known all the perils or the things that could have gone wrong or how hard it would be, maybe I wouldn't have tried it. But as it was, it was her idea to head over, and we played in four qualifying tournaments for the professional events. I got beat a lot, so I did learn how good those players are. In the 80s, the players were coming out of Russia. The predominant surface was clay, which is also not my surface. As we've just met, I'm pretty tall, and I'm a power player. I was mostly a baseliner, so lost a lot, but played some amazing people. And, you know, had to do some things like keep score in French. There was a language barrier, and it just made the game really interesting. That is a part that no one really talks about on the tour, is when you're first trying to make it oh. and the language is not your own. There's no pleasantries. You're just literally playing the sport and trying to keep score. And, and at times that was, you know, it was a challenge. And being on tour, I mean, we're seeing now, you know, more and more that it's not super glamorous a lot of the time, were there moments that you questioned your path? It wasn't glamorous, and I was only doing it for a summer. Like, I knew that I was playing in college. I knew I was pursuing my education. And traveling in Europe confirmed I would not be earning my living playing tennis. I, they're just a different level of professional players that can actually earn a living. I mean, they're so, so good so when I went back to school, it just, you know, it made it clear that for me, tennis was a means to an end. It was not the way I would earn my living, but it opened so many doors. And there were so many parts of tennis that I, I apply to my life now, I have throughout my career. So it's still a part of me. But I think I knew before I headed over that summer, but that summer certainly confirmed that I was not going to be a professional tennis player. I remember very vividly a match that I lost very badly in which I realized this is not going to be my professional career. And I had this just crippling disappointment. Did you feel that? And how did you cope with it? No, I don't think I ever thought 
tennis would really be the way I would earn my living. I think I had a pretty healthy sense of I was really good for a region, but there was a whole different level of play out there. And I was excited about going to school and learning other things. Now, at some point, I did think that being around tennis might be my thing. I thought maybe a physical therapist. You know, I had my ACL injury my sophomore year, so I got to know physical therapy really well. And so I thought maybe I would do something like that, help other athletes. But as it turned out, that did not play to my strengths. I'm not a science, math kind of person. So I, I learned that that wasn't going to be my strongest play. So I shifted again later to more of the liberal arts, which was my background. I was a political science and philosophy undergrad. And so now let's talk about college. The moment that really, I feel like, defines us both as players and as people. What was the biggest thing that you took from your experience as a Husky? <laughs> oh, I... Gosh, I, I really, I loved my four years playing tennis as a Husky. I do think that I really saw myself as a student athlete. And so I was always really proud of how was I doing on the court. You know, University of Washington's big school. And so playing on a tennis team helped make the school small. And I really enjoyed the women that I played with. I think throughout, I was really proud of how I did in the court, the relationships that I was able to create. And then I also really thought about the academics piece. And so my final year, I was the student athlete of the year. And that probably was one of my proudest moments being recognized as a student athlete versus just an athlete, which I think was always really part of how I saw the door opening. Like tennis was a way in to a great school to be now people who are interesting, to travel in the world. Like tennis has been such a vehicle. I love the sport, but that's how I think about the four years. I, I've got really fond memories. So do you see tennis as a team sport after your college tennis years? Because it's all these individuals vying for spots that not all of us are going to have. It is a funny sport. I played basketball in high school as well, which is more obvious team sport. But I do think on the tennis team, like you do end up supporting your teammates, whether they're playing singles, whether they're on the sidelines, you're cheering, you want to see your team do well. But I really did enjoy the doubles. I love having someone on the court with me, sharing in the excitement and sharing in the burden. I, I do think that singles, when things are great, it's like the greatest feeling in the world. And when the wheels are off in the singles game, like it is a very lonely place. And that loss is fully on your shoulders. And there were certainly times where I really could feel that pressure. I just didn't enjoy those moments when I knew I wasn't playing well and you're alone on the singles court and it's visible because there's a crowd and they're watching and you're losing. That's tough. And you never experience that in a sport like basketball. At least I never felt like I had that kind of a burden on my shoulders. Were you ever in a situation where you felt like you had to rely on the support system of your teammates to get through a loss like that? For sure, because I think in college, part of what took me a while to figure out is when you're a student athlete, so much of your confidence and your self-esteem is wrapped up into how you're doing on the court. And I think when you suffer a tough loss, 
it can turn into like, I didn't just lose a match. Like I'm not a great person or I'm not succeeding in life right now. It can really become much bigger than just, I lost a match. And I think that's where my teammates really came into play. You know, family is great and they've always been there for me, but they're not physically on the ground for those matches in that moment. And so I think it was my teammates and those young women who I was able to have the conversation with them about, like, it's a match, but let's not forget what we are good at and what we stand for and that you're not only your tennis game. But that's pretty hard when you're 18 to 21. I don't know about you, but a lot of my self-esteem was caught up in, like, how did I do? For me, it was the same and. And that really extended to other parts of my life where I felt like it almost took over my time. You know, in the classroom as a student, it took over my time socially because I was so obsessed with how I was doing on the court and within the team environment. And so it took me a lot of years to be able to separate sports and life because in high school, it was just so intertwined. In middle school, it was so intertwined. And in college, that's kind of that melting pot when they all come together and all the lines are just so blurred. Yeah, and it, the stakes feel higher, right? I mean, if you're on scholarship, your scholarship's on the line, there's expectations. I was a member of a sorority, and I was the athlete that they talked about. And so, and so there seemed to be a lot of people who were vested in how it was going. So, you know, it, it's funny. I have such fond memories. And recently, my mom was giving me things that that she didn't want to be packing around anymore. And I found one of my journals from undergraduate. And there were some passages where I was, tennis wasn't going great for me. And it was just interesting to read some of the words that I had written and how hard I was on myself. After college, I did walk away from the sport for like five or six years. When I was finished with my undergraduate degree, I just finished playing tennis. I focused on my academics, got through law school. There's not a lot of time for tennis in law school, but I needed a break before I came back into it. And then I got back into it and played USTA and played team and more doubles than singles, and it was fantastic. So I got back into the sport and the love of sport, but I did need a break after that undergraduate experience. During that break, what was your new workout? Did you find something specific? (laughs) I tried all sorts of things. I was going to law school in Indiana, so I got back into playing basketball. I also did, because it was the 80s, I did a fair amount of step aerobics. (laughs) Is that like cardio dance? It's like a big bench that you put in the middle of the floor, and they're playing great music, and you're moving around the bench. So it's a lot of step work, but it's not so much dance moves. Interesting. <laughs> you'll have to you'll have to look it up. I'm going it's to an eighties. It's an eighties thing. I mean, it may be Zumba slash aerobics with a step. Regardless, I didn't get as much exercise as I needed in law school, but I did find a way to play basketball and do the step aerobics. Did you feel that your teammates had similar experiences? You know, in that transition period right after college, when they maybe found new workouts or put the rackets down for a while? Yeah, I mean, quite a few of them went right into USTA and they were like, where are you, Monique? Like, where have you been? What are you doing? So they got into that a little earlier than me. I'm not playing tennis anymore because the knee that gave me trouble is still an issue, but many of us are now playing pickleball. I'm not sure uh, what you think about pickleball, but the aging tennis athletes with joint issues, many of us are now playing pickleball. And it does tap into some of what was so fun about tennis. It's a way to be able to play but not cover as much court, which is honestly a great thing. It's a great thing. The sound of the ball hitting the racket is 
So satisfying. Why does tennis not have that? I don't know. I, but it's I miss- the loudest, most <laughs> it's so loud. unnecessarily loud sound it's ever. It's <laughs> so loud. But the thing that you miss with that paddle is there aren't any strings. And so there's no give. The ball just dies on your racket. So it's a really weird movement. You do things in pickleball that you would never do in tennis. Like you drop your wrist, you break your wrist, you scoop. I mean, it's really weird. You it's scoop? Really, you scoop. They call it the pooper scooper in tennis. (laughs) I don't know, but it's an actual move in pickleball. You have to break all these tennis things that I I would never, never do. But like I said, I'm a eye hand. Racket is my thing. I thoroughly enjoy the sound of it. I love to win a point. I like to be at the net. So it satisfies that. Racket sports, obviously, are just this huge part of your life. Does that extend to ping pong? Actually, yes. In COVID, my son and I really got into ping pong. (laughs) It was one of those things that we could do outside, and he started beating me, and so I started watching YouTubes, and I mean, they they just hit the heck out of the ball. So I had to make some adjustments to how I was hitting the ball, but I improved my ping pong game in COVID quite a bit. Unbelievable. Well, talking about COVID in that period when I feel like people were more vulnerable than perhaps they were in the past, what do you think was the role of vulnerability, you know, in making you a leader on the tennis team and now here at Nike? I think in coming through something like COVID, the more you can be honest about how you're doing, be curious about how those around you are doing, I think that is a way to find those human connections that will allow you to ask for help, offer help in a way that's meaningful. So in my role here at Nike, a big part of the last couple of years for me and my team, we are thinking about our employees, whether they are retail athletes working in the store every day with customers who are masked or not masked. We have employees in our distribution centers who are moving the product. And then we have our corporate workforce. So we have to think about our employees and the environment they're in How do we support them? How do we keep them safe? And a part of that is just being authentic, being vulnerable. And if you don't model it from the leadership positions, it's really hard for employees to feel like they have permission to be authentic and vulnerable themselves. So we have spent a lot of time hopefully modeling what it looks like to be vulnerable, not pretending that things are perfect, and letting people know that we don't have all the answers. We've never done this before. And to your point about tennis earlier, like you're making mistakes 100 a day. And it's okay because when you don't know what you're doing, you got to keep moving. Sometimes you're going to get it right and sometimes you're not. Right. And I feel like in that team culture, at least I was very closed off for the first two years. And only when I opened up to my teammates about my own struggles, which were actually very obvious to anyone who was watching, I was like, wow, that is a weight off my shoulders. Did you ever have a moment where either as a team player or here at Nike that you felt like you shared something in your life that kind of let you feel more free? Oh, yes. I mean, you forget how many hands are around you and ready to help. If you don't put a hand out, you don't even know they're there. And so there have been a number of times at Nike where, you know, probably one of the most impactful is when I came out and told people about my wife. And it was a moment where my team was wanting to know more about me, but I was pretty shut off because I was 
thinking I would be very private. I wasn't going to talk about that because it wasn't work. And I was afraid they would judge or reject me or like, I don't know what I was so afraid of, but it wasn't until my team sent a clear signal to me that we want to know more about your personal life. We just want to know who you are. If you're our leader, we want to know more about you. And I remember I came home from a holiday where my wife and I had exchanged vows and I came back with this ring that I'm wearing and I didn't say a word. And my team was like, seriously, Mo, you can't go on vacation, come back, wear that ring and say nothing. And so I was like, okay, uh, okay, you're probably right. That might be a little ridiculous. And so then I started talking about my wife. And of course, the minute I start talking, you know, my wife, her name is Kate, we're still together 30 plus years. They just wanted to show their support. So there's been a couple of moments like that where I found that, yeah, the minute I could open up, people are there like crazy. But the more you hold it in and you're just tight and polished and don't let anyone in, you just feel isolated. You're drawing a parallel that I probably hadn't drawn before, but it can feel like that when you're playing singles. And we're seeing more and more pro athletes, especially so many Nike athletes. I mean, the first one that comes to my mind, of course, is Naomi Osaka in the tennis world, really just coming out about her struggles with mental health. And I mean, the impact that that's had on so many athletes all around the world of every gender from every place, just to see that it's okay, even as a pro, to not have everything together. It's so healthy. I mean, the dialogue we're having about mental health today is so healthy. There's a generation, my parents' generation, where like, you didn't even talk about counseling. My generation has come a little bit further, but I think right now, the way that we are openly talking about it, destigmatizing it, talking about the ways that people can get support, it's just so much healthier. And we're seeing in the college space, at least, fortunately, more and more mental health resources being funded and just being communicated to the student athletes. Where do you see the future of that support? I think the more and more we just get young children talking about how they're feeling and getting parents comfortable with support no matter what age. I'm hoping we go all the way back into grade school and as people come through, they always know what's available. Sports is a great place to start. And I think we just gotta keep working our way into the family system and make sure that people understand there's a safe place to talk about how you're feeling. What would you tell yourself when you were in college now? I would probably say just have a little more fun, loosen up a little bit. I was just serious about what I was doing. I was serious about my tennis. I was serious about my studies. And, you know, there's a lot of life to be serious. And so I'm trying to signal that to my daughter who is in college now. Just have a little more fun along the way. I feel like it's so ironic because in a lot of ways the sport gets so serious that by the time that we get to college, As you said earlier, the stakes feel so high, but then we're also in the space where for many of us, it's the end of our college careers and it's the end of our tennis careers. And so is there a way to find that balance and how do you think that can be done? I think there's something in our purpose. The reason we started tennis, like the why and what we loved, I think there's a way to stay connected with that as long as you can, but it has to be explicit. I don't think it just happens. In a professional life, too, we talk about our purpose and our why when we work here at Nike. And I think there is something to that mental exercise of being conscious, being deliberate. Mindful might be the more popular word right now about why did you love it? 
why did you start playing? And get back in touch with that versus pounding yourself for like, why am I not performing right now? It's affirming, it's energizing, and it helps create that flow. That's what athletes say when they're performing beautifully. Like they're having fun, they're in the flow, it feels easy. And I think you could probably generate that feeling more often if you were really focused on like, why am I here? What do I love about this sport? Why is this my job? Why is this the company I choose to work for? That usually will get you into a place that feels more productive and positive. At least I know it does for me because I loved the sport, but I also love the company I work for. I love the work that I do. Nike is just the space that champions the athlete at every level. How has Nike maintained this image of a winner, even when that image has changed over all this time? Well, we're for sure about high-performance professional athletes. I was just at Wimbledon for the first time. Yes. Can we really quickly say a little bit more about that? (laughs) Well, I was there on holiday never been to Wimbledon. It was a bucket list, right? I mean, if you grew up playing tennis, it was the pinnacle of tennis. It is where you need to be. And so I was able to watch the Nick Curios match with um, the American player, Brandon, and it was a five-set match. So I'm telling you, I was completely kind of choked up, but I was like, listen, I just, like Wimbledon is the pinnacle of tennis. I just saw a five-set match where our athlete was competing like crazy. He shouldn't really have won that match. Brendan played beautifully. He probably should have won that match, but Nick just like elevated his game in that fifth set in a way that champions do. And I love watching that process of the competition and then to just have the environment all around us and to be sharing it with my family. So it was an amazing, amazing day. So it is a huge bucket list item for me to go to Wimbledon. And not only that, but just to be in the atmosphere. I mean, what is it like? Is it big? Is the campus big? Because I've heard it's not as big as it looks. It's not. And I kept, I was, because I've been to the U.S. Open, which is just giant, right? It's really big. It's It's really big. very much of a USA Grand Slam. (laughs) Totally. I mean, it's New York, right? It's just, it's, it's New York. Wimbledon was, the courts were so beautifully maintained, but it felt intimate and even center court. So we were on center court for that match. And even the top row seats, I think, were pretty decent versus Arthur Ashe. I mean, it's so giant. If you're up in those super high seats, you, you can probably barely really see the lines. Um, so you'd probably have to watch the big camera. But on this, it was so close. And the seats are close to the court. So it's not just that the environment is small, but it felt very intimate. And then we could walk around, of course, and just sit there with the players. They would come off the court, walk right by you. It was, it's very intimate. So neat. It was great. That's amazing. And so where do you see the future of female athletes, both at Nike and beyond? I mean, I think women, I think we've made progress. And of course there's, there's progress to make. But when you think of the Billie Jean King and what she has done in tennis and you think of the prize money and what Serena has contributed and you look at the level of play. I mean, I I think we're going to see more and more of that. And you think of the, the women's soccer and, and the pay equity on that, on that front. I, what I'm 
the most hopeful for is that women's sports um, allow women who are extraordinary athletes to continue their careers in a way that's meaningful to them. And I, I don't think the, like the WNBA, I love that we're investing in that as a, as a society and as Nike, a company. I think those women are amazing athletes and I'd like them to be able to earn a living playing the sport they love. And I don't think it has to be a takedown of the NBA. Like I, I like the idea of creating something that could be uniquely for women, but allows them to showcase the amazing athletes that they are. And I also really think that women are on the forefront of the new definition of sport. Like it doesn't all have to be an organized sport the way that we think of professional sports today. It can be movement, it can be dance, it can be fitness training, it can be runs that are connected socially or run with other, like I think women will be on the forefront of redefining a really broad definition of sport. So I, I see hope in women professional athletes who get to continue to play the sport they love if they are really the best in the world in a way that's similar to how some of the men are able to. But I also think that through their lives, I like the idea that we can help women and women can on their own redefine what sport means. I am Monique Matheson and I am On The Rise. And this is Perry Shinen, and this has been another episode of On The Rise Podcast. This has been an episode of On The Rise, a Tennis Channel podcast in partnership with Behind The Racket and produced by Molly Schulson. Join us next time to continue our conversation about women's college tennis. This is Perry Shinen, On The Rise.